Welcome to the 16th podcast in our Genesis 12 through 36 sermon series. I'm Dan Rambeck, one of the elders at City on a Hill Church, located in Rosemount, Minnesota. Our service is live streamed from the Steeple Center every Sunday at 10 a.m. on both YouTube and Facebook. Bruce Bentley is continuing our series with a sermon called Grace and the Great Reversal. This is truly a wonderful day. Welcome to City on a Hill Church. Uh, If you're here, obviously present, welcome. Uh, If you're streaming online from wherever you are, we also extend a welcome to you. This is an exciting morning for a number of reasons. We have Cedarwood Church joining us this morning for worship, so a special welcome to all of you. Glad that you're here. This is also a morning that we'll celebrate in baptism. So we have three people being baptized Um, One from our church, uh, City on a Hill, and two from Cedarwood. So exciting to hear any time we have an opportunity to hear stories of new faith, crossing over from death to life, the freedom and new life that we have in Jesus Christ. Love to hear those stories. So after our message is done, we'll have, I believe, another song of worship. I'll do some announcements, and then I'll ask all of us, to uh, exit the church on the east side of the building here and join in front of that where that black tub is. That is our, that's our baptism tub for this morning. And it's also a, a morning of new things. We got a new tub, so this is pretty exciting. I'm pretty sure this one won't leak, so it really should be uh, adequate for our baptisms this morning. So um, just a, a word of caution. It may be a little bit tricky walking through those doors because you run right into the tub. So if you would like to be inadvertently baptized this morning, uh, then that may be the path that you would like to take. If you would like to avoid that possibility, then as you exit this portion of the building, you can take a left and you go past where the bathrooms are and then there is another exit and entrance and you can simply go around that way and don't take a chance on the tub. Okay. So we are in the book of Genesis. If you're just joining us, we are in chapter 25 this morning. We are halfway through now. Genesis is a long original Testament book, 50 chapters of uh, all sorts of stuff going on. And we are in chapter 25 this morning. In case you don't read Genesis a lot, there are a lot of stories that are compressed into these 50 chapters, many years And generations go by, uh, as we've already seen from creation, and then as we get into the the story of Abraham, and now in chapter 25, we see that both Sarah and Abraham have died, and then uh, the chapter begins with his genealogies. Uh, So are the generations of, and as we've talked about earlier in the book, when you see that happen in Genesis, it's like a chapter has ended and a new chapter is beginning. So that's right where we're at this morning. So if you're new this morning, if you're watching us, you've never watched us before, you are at the beginning of a new chapter. We all kind of start at the same place. Now, if you read Genesis or a lot of the history books of the original Testament, you'll discover all sorts of stories and what in the world do they mean, right? Uh, Maybe you've encountered that as you've read the Bible. things that are foreign to us now. The culture is different, the language is different. 
expectations of life. They're all different. The covenant is different. So many differences. So what do we do with those? So here's how we approach it. We try to look for themes as they present themselves. Because it isn't just a random collection of stories and hope you'd feel better about reading this story or better about yourself about that story. No. All of these stories, the narrator, as God has inspired him, this being Moses, has put these accounts together so that we can begin to catch on to major themes. And that's really the benefit of going through an entire book. Sometimes we do topical things. Sometimes it's real important to address certain topics in the life of the church as we're going along. But most of the time, we want to chart our course through the entire book. Why? So we can pick up on themes. It isn't just a random cherry picking like I, like I called it. A story here, a story there. No. The narrators put these together for a reason. So as we chart through, we can begin to understand what those reasons are. A scholar by the name of Robert Smith Jr. said this, for every New Testament doctrine, there is an original Testament picture. I love how he says that. Let me say it again. For every New Testament doctrine, there is an Old Testament or original Testament picture. What we are looking at today in Genesis, we see dimly. We don't see the results or, or everything where it leads us to, as far as understanding about the new covenant, about Jesus Christ coming. But as the, as the narrator weaves these different, as, as he calls it, pictures, as he weaves these pictures together, before Jesus comes, our eyes begin to open. We begin to see themes. We start to understand certain things that lead us to the greatest understanding, the ultimate reveal, so to speak, of Jesus Christ coming. And that's why I get so excited about the original Testament. It isn't about moralism. It isn't this guy's better than that guy or she's better than her or whatever. No, it's leading us beyond the complicated issues and intricacies and uh, good or bad or otherwise. It's leading us beyond that and even through that to see the ultimate example, the ultimate reason that we have to rejoice. And it's just so awesome that we have baptisms this morning because we'll get to hear, it's not just about the text this morning, what we see in the book of Genesis, it's about real lives. We get to hear the stories of how Jesus has made all the difference. So I hope you're as excited as I am. If you're not, maybe you'll get there, okay? So just follow along with me and uh, we'll get there together. So Genesis chapter 25, I mentioned pictures coming together with themes. And what we see this morning, what we'll talk about is three different themes that are woven through the book of Genesis, and we just so happen to see all these three at least being introduced in the stories of, of uh, Isaac and Rebekah and Esau and Jacob. And again, foreign to us, birthright stuff. Uh, the, the details, these are not culturally applicable to us today, but when it comes to understanding the gospel, they are very important for us. So, three different themes. Let's get started by reading a portion of Genesis 25. The new chapter I mentioned. Here we go. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Padanaram, 
the sister of Laban, the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. The children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, the older shall serve the younger." When her days to give birth were completed, behold, there were twins in her womb. The first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, and so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful, skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. First major theme that we see uh, coming out of this passage that weaves its way through Genesis is this, barrenness and promise. We just read, uh, way back to verse 19 there and following, that Rebekah cannot get pregnant. Isaac prayed constantly over years, we get the feeling from the text here, that she would become pregnant and have a, a child. And then later on in verse 26, we understand what? The 20 years go by in that interim period. And in the text, we don't get a feel for how dramatic and how huge that is, because the narrator inter introduces that idea in just one verse. 20 years in one verse. It's so easy sometimes in Scripture, as you're reading along, da-da-da-da-da-da, and this happened, and she couldn't have babies, and he prayed, and bang, and then she's pregnant, right? And that's the way it feels with one verse. But you read down, and you discover that is 20 years have gone by. When was the last time you waited 20 years for something? Okay? Now think about that. Now maybe for some of us in our 50s or 60s, You've been waiting 20 years uh, for the pension to kick in, right? And you can look back and go, 20 years, right? Where did 20 years go, uh, right? Maybe you're a parent, and the kids are getting older, finally, and 20 years is coming around, and you're thinking, great, yeah, I'm that much closer to the empty nest, right? It's not me in particular. I'm just saying some people think like that, okay? So maybe you're in a place where 20 years is starting, you know, is starting to happen, but for most of us, a deep longing that goes down to the core of your being, 20 years, a longing for something that you've always wanted to have, that's not very common with us. So it's too bad it happens just in one verse because we, we can easily lose the significance of what is happening in, in the story of Isaac and Rebekah. In this culture, all the pressure was on the wife to have the baby. They didn't understand what was going on. It may be the husband's fault, right, that this isn't working out. Uh, could be. But in this culture, well, she gets pregnant, she has the baby. It's on her to have the child. So all the pressure is on Rebecca for 20 years. So she certainly feels the responsibility and the weight of that, and along with that, the shame. That, combined with this, the covenant 
the future of the covenant, the relationship that began with the Lord and Abraham and now on to Isaac, it all comes down to Rebekah now. So it's not just any other family, if we could say it like that. This is the covenant promise family. For 20 years, everyone's staring at Rebekah and all she has to offer is nothing. Barrenness, emptiness, barrenness isn't just a condition that Rebecca faced. It isn't just a condition or situation that some women face today. The reason that we have this so many times repeated in Scripture is because barrenness goes beyond a lack of children. There is a theme here that, that introduces the idea that barrenness can occur with all of us. Man, woman, uh, husband, wife, child, you name it. Because barrenness is ultimately a condition or can be a condition of the heart. To want and not have. To not be able to have. No matter what your desire is no matter what the effort is, to want and not have, and to feel empty, to have a void inside of you, that, friends, is barrenness. To be incomplete, to be left in life without purpose, without direction, without something that really is a very humankind thing, to look and to achieve or to gain something that transcends this life something that gives me purpose and meaning and helps to define me that is not connected to something of this life, whether it's childbearing or my job, uh, something else that I can produce, uh, something else that I can gain or accomplish. It is a very humankind thing to have within us, I believe as part of the, uh, of the image of God, to be seeking and longing for something that transcends. And until we find that, we are left with a feeling of barrenness. Now, anybody in the last week watch any of the Olympics? Anybody on TV? Okay, a number of you. I love watching the Olympics. Not so much the swimming stuff. I could care less about that. Badminton and table tennis is awesome. To see what these people can do with that little ping pong ball is amazing. I love watching track and field, the drama of that arguably one of the greatest Olympians, and you still hear his name. I think I have a picture of him here. There he is. That look familiar? Michael Phelps. They're even uh, talking about him, even though he's not competing anymore. His name was popping up. I heard the commentators mentioning him. Anybody know how many gold medals are around his neck in that picture? 23 times. He won gold in the Olympics. That's what we can argue about who's the best Olympian, but certainly he's towards the top of the list, right? 23 times he beat everybody. But even Michael Phelps has struggled with a barrenness in his life and in his heart. In a People Magazine interview back in, in 2018, uh, they asked Phelps about what he had achieved and some of the issues that he had, and things that he had gone through after winning all those gold medals and then going into retirement. And he said he even contemplated suicide 
after the 2012 games in London. He said, I didn't want to be in the sport anymore. I didn't even want to be alive. He said it's those darkest moments. That he, that in those darkest moments is when he contemplated taking his own life. Now, I don't know what else was going on in his life, and, and certainly there were other issues that he was struggling with. So I don't want to oversimplify this. But he did, in that interview and other times, uh, convey the idea that all of these awards, 23 gold medals, none of that was important enough to give his life meaning. It was all temporary. It was all just more metal hanging on a piece of ribbon. What he was longing for, what he was barren about, was something that, that surpassed all of that. And he didn't find it in any of those things, even with fantastic success. At the level of a Michael Phelps, you can still be absolutely barren. So the first thing we see coursing its way throughout Genesis and really throughout Scripture is the fact that without God, without that that transcends, we are left empty and void and longing for something greater and something more meaningful. The second theme I want us to look at this morning if we can get there, there we go, enmity and struggle. Now, enmity isn't a word we use a whole lot, okay, anymore, or uh, maybe ever. Uh, it means hostility, it means animosity, it may mean antagonism. Uh, it's a word that, depending on your translation, you may have it all the way back in Genesis as part of the curse, uh, as uh, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, God said he placed enmity uh, between the serpent and Eve. So not just between animal, the animal kingdom and humankind, but between all of us in all of our relationships. Enmity continues to sneak back in like a serpent gliding around on the ground looking for a place to strike. Animosity, hostility, antagonism, it's always there, just possibly at least around the corner. Back to the text. Isaac prayed for Rebekah. We read that already. And the Lord answers and she becomes pregnant. But this pregnancy brings about more problems, not less. Her reaction to this extra activity in her womb is what? Negative, right? This must be a bad thing. And at least in her culture and her time, to have that whatever is going on in her womb certainly must have been a bad omen. This something is going wrong here. So she goes to, and prays. She inquires of the Lord, the text says. What is going on? In fact, the question is, why is this happening to me? Okay? She goes from what is blessing, I'm pregnant now, to this must be trouble. So she asks of the Lord. And there is trouble on the way. The Lord replies to her. He answers her question, uh, but not with the answer that, that she wanted. And you know what? Even as you look at the Gospels, uh, when people ask Jesus questions, what does he oftentimes do? Does he give them a neat, immediate answer that fulfills everything they were wondering about? No. Many times there's another question. That's the way it seems like God works here with Rebecca, as well as what Jesus does, as well as what most of us experience. He doesn't give her the nice, neat answer but he does say this, 
two nations are in you. Now, just think about this for a second, because as far as I can tell in the text, the, the promise of the covenant was a nation was going to come from uh, Abraham and, and Isaac and, and so forth, but there wasn't any hint that that nation might include another nation alongside it. So now she's wondering, what? what? Why is this happening to me? We've gone from one nation, and now all of a sudden we're talking about two nations, and there's going to be enmity with these two nations. There's going to be conflict. There's going to be upheaval. One is going to be stronger than the other. And in fact, out of these two children, the, the younger is going to be more important than the older one, which never happens in this culture. So the Lord provides an answer that really provokes more questions. So when she gives birth, we read from verses 24 and, and forward, the first was born red and hairy, so they named him Esau, which sounds like red, the color red. The second born comes out holding on to Esau's heel, so they name him Jacob, and Jacob actually means that, to take by the heel. But the interesting thing is the name Jacob also means cheats. So we're going to get to that in a second here. And the enmity and the, and the struggle between these two boys, between Esau and Jacob, continues, not just in their relationship, but it spreads in the, into the family. Mom and dad are also part of this struggle. Why? Why do we say that? Because Isaac loved Esau and Rebekah loved Jacob. So within that dynamic, it's becoming obvious as these boys grow that there's a little favoritism going on here. Uh, they're, because they're like-minded in similar ways, because they connect over certain things, whether it's hunting or being more quiet in the tent, they, they have preferences. And the enmity and the struggle continues. There are a lot of brother problems and family struggles in Genesis. If you go to Genesis and try to find the perfect family or a good example of a parent, you're going to be pretty upset, Right? You're not going to find a whole lot going on there, not just Genesis, really, in the, in the entire Bible. Cain and Abel get us started with enmity that's part of the curse, way back to Genesis chapter 3. Then we see Abraham and Lot, uh, Isaac and Ishmael, of course, Jacob and Esau, Jacob and Laban. We're going to get into that in another couple chapters as we continue to course through Genesis. Joseph and his brothers at the climax, way towards the end of the book of Genesis in chapter 50. Lots of struggle, lots of problems with families and with brothers and, and close family members in particular. So back to the central question Rebecca, that Rebecca asked, why is this happening to me? Rebecca asked the question that we all ask, that we continue to ask today. Whether you know Christ right now personally or not, this is a question that people raise, not just to each other, but to God, or if I hope there's a God up there somewhere, I hope he's answering and listening to me. Because why? Why do these things happen to me? God, if you're for me, why does it seem like you're against me? Why do my struggles keep happening? Why can't things just be good for a while, okay? I've had enough of struggles and testing and difficulties. Can we just have a break? Have you ever prayed like that? You could tell the truth. I have. Why? Yes. I'm, I'm done with the struggle for now, Lord. Can we, can we get on? Can we move past that? It'd be great to have some blessings for a while, right? Will this constant struggle ever 
go away. So the Lord's promises that we see in Genesis, that we see throughout Scripture, that we see in our own lives, are so often attached to the ongoing struggle, especially for believers, of living for Christ and no longer for ourselves. The struggles are real. God is at work. But how and why and, and, and the longing for something to finally come to change so the struggle is done. Third theme, grace and the great reversal. We see this developing in Genesis. So we're going to nail down this last part of the passage here. Let's read from verses 29 on. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. Therefore, his name was called Edom, which means red. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. What in the world does this mean in our cultural context, especially when it comes to birthright? Because we don't talk about that, and uh, maybe some cultures that's still an issue or importance today, not so much today. And this is a passage that's always troubled me. Is he really so dull to come in from the field and I'm hungry, and because a birthright is so significant, he is going to get the lion's share, the majority of the wealth of his father, he's certain of that, to be born first is all of that and more, the prestige, the importance within the family, within the community, all of that. Are you kidding me? He comes in and he's hungry, and oh, I'll just give all that up, you know, just for a bowl of soup, right? I, I, always, I always wrestled with that. Like, how could he be that dense? to give up everything for some food. So what's really going on with Esau here? So we see the answer of what's going on in his both in his approach to his brother and in his departure from his brother. Now the, the language in his question literally says this, let me gulp down some of this red stuff. I love that. I don't know why uh, modern translations don't retain that. Because it's kind of, I don't know, sanitized? It's kind of made more Bible-ish talk. But he, he literally comes in, and we get the feeling that he is starving, because we don't know how long he's been out in the field or wandering around hunting or whatever. But he comes in and just give me some of this. Give me that red stuff right there. Give it to me now, he says. So Esau, we get this feeling, is crude. He's impatient, and he's careless with the relationship with his brother and even the direction of his own life. He's been out hunting for who knows how long, wandering around the wilderness, not even taking care of himself is where the text is leading us in here. So that's his approach to his brother. How does he uh, depart away from his brother? The language is very staccato in what he does in the end of this passage. He ate, he drank, he rose, he left, he despised. That's the language. That's what we get when we read about Esau. Boom, 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 boom. I could care less about you, about my family, about, about what's going on around me, even my birthright. So the narrator leads us through those steps to finally say what's in the end of that passage. Thus, 
Like, in, because, therefore, all this we've just seen, he despises what, what God has given him. He has the ability to have the birthright, to be the guy in the family. It's his right. He despises it. None of that means anything to me. There's, there's ignorance, maybe arrogance in his attitude, in his actions, and none of it matters. So he walks away. That's Esau. And then there's Jacob. And it's tempting sometimes in Sunday school handouts to make one look better than the other. Because Esau's this crude guy, all the stuff I just mentioned. But Jacob, he hangs out in tents and he's basically a nice guy. No, he's not a basically a nice guy. Remember what his name means? He cheats. He knows his brother is out in the wilderness for who knows how long. And he probably has a pretty good idea at this point in their lives and how he acts and what he does. And he knows he's going to come back starving to death. So what does he conveniently do? He prepares the stew. He's got all the food going. It's all hot and ready. And there his brother comes in stumbling out of the wilderness looking for something to eat. And there it is. Jacob's got it ready. It's all sitting there ready for him. Now, if Jacob was, had any character as a brother, as a sibling who loves his brother, what would he do? What are you supposed to do? Oh, I see you're hungry. Here, have some to eat. I've got enough to share. Does he do that? No, he's a jerk. He's like most of us. How many of you had an opportunity to be nice to a sibling at some point in your life and you saw in that moment an opportunity to get them? Right? Huh? They can suffer a little bit longer, right? Because I'm in control in this moment. I'm holding the keys. You will bow to me, right? That's what we do at some point with our brothers and sisters and our families. That's what he's doing. And he cheats him. He, he lays out the food. He knows how impetuous he is. He knows what his attitude is. He sees the opportunity and he grabs it. Sell me your birthright now. Do it. His food is right here. That's the kind of guy that Jacob is and it works. He sells his birthright for a bowl of soup, a piece of bread. Who does that? He does it and Jacob knew it. There is a reversal that's going on even in that passage. The, the older is about to serve the younger. And that's just kind of a teaser for what's going to happen soon in the rest of the passage. So you got to stick with Genesis and see what else happens with us. But this is the setup. We understand from this interaction that neither of these guys are exemplary. We don't look to either of these guys and say, oh, you're better and you're lesser. No, they both got issues, yet in the midst of that, there is a reversal in what is happening with their lives. We see that throughout the book of Genesis. The offering of Cain, right, is rejected. The line of Seth was chosen over his older brothers. Back to chapter four. Isaac over Ishmael. Rachel over Leah. Joseph over his brothers in chapter 49 when we reach that climax of the story. So what are we really talking about when it comes to reversal and what I said there? Grace happening in the midst of that reversal. There is an awesome quote. Uh, a scholar that I read by the name of John Salehammer says this, behind each of these reversals that we see in the book of Genesis 
was this recurring theme of God's sovereign plan of grace. The blessing was not a natural right as the right of the firstborn son would be. Rather, God's blessing was extended to those who had no other claim to it. They all received what they did not deserve. And this is where it gets complicated. I, I mentioned many times, the people in, in the Bible are real. And we got to read them as, in a 3D way, not 2D. They're not flat. Everybody that we read about has issues, has problems, has struggles. None of them are perfect. They all have challenges. There's enmity in all these families and relationships. So we have to be careful how we read and how we're informed about them. And Salehammer hits the nail on the head. They all, those who are receiving grace, they get what they don't deserve. So we can't read moralism into any of these stories as if they somehow were good enough to deserve what God gave them or the blessings they received. Uh-uh. That's not anywhere in Scripture. And it's not anywhere with us either. Each account is different. Each one in account in Genesis grabs us different ways. But there's the same thought as you read it that what's going on is not right or fair. He cheated him. But he's not such a good guy either. But should he get blessed? No. Well, well, then should the other guy? Well, he doesn't really deserve it either. But somebody's getting blessed. And that is the opportunity for grace. As Salehammer said, sovereign grace. That God is in control. And as we continue to read, someone gets what they did not deserve. And it's usually in a scandalous way. Look back at the text. Look back at the, at the story. And as we read on, somebody, yes, yeah, somebody gets grace, but it's scandalous. They don't deserve it. You should read that and go, oh, that's not right. They, don't, they shouldn't have that. But God gives it anyway. That's grace. That is unmerited favor. And so many times we get that confused or distorted, like I must have some merit, right? Why? Because I'm not like that guy. I haven't done those things, so I'm a little bit better. So somehow God should give me a little bit more, right? No. I'm right in there with these guys. Nothing I've done deserves anything but the ending of my life. Grace is unmerited favor. Somebody doesn't get it. But somebody does. In just a few moments, we're going to go outside and we're going to hear stories of how God has worked and how God has extended grace. Each, and I haven't heard all the stories. In fact, I haven't heard any of them. I'm so excited to hear them. Each one will show us how they've experienced God's grace in their life. I'm sure each one is going to have a but God moment when it comes to grace. What do I mean by that? I think I have it on the screen. Yes, Ephesians 2, 4 through 5. In explaining, Paul explained to us who we really are as we stand before a perfect God, a holy God. He begins verse 4 with those two words. Those are the hinge of eternity. Those are the hinge of grace. But God, none of us deserve grace. None of us deserve his love. None of us deserve the cross and what Jesus came to do. But God, being rich in mercy, 
because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. Nothing else. Amen? Nothing else we bring to the equation. Nothing we bring but our brokenness, our, our enmity, our struggle, our strife, our selfishness, on and on. We only bring what is necessary for grace. And Jesus answers the final question in our lives. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. What we earn with our lives brings our lives to an end. Death is what we earn for rejecting Christ. And there is no middle ground. But God intervenes, but God intervenes through his son and extends grace, unmerited favor. And then look what happens. Look what happens in these themes that we've just talked about. The original Testament picture is dim with these themes of what's going on. But as we see the story, the picture through the lens of Jesus, we begin to understand what? Barrenness receives the promised provision. If we, if we had time, we'd go back and look at Abraham as he is on the mountain with Isaac. He's about to sacrifice his only son, your son, your only son, right, in the text. But right as the dagger is about to come down, the angel interrupts, wait, don't do it. I see that you're, you're obedient. And then Abraham looks, there's the ram in the thicket. And then Abraham names that place, the Lord provides. Every place and where there's barrenness and there's emptiness, Jesus doesn't forget about anything in our lives. Now, it doesn't all happen instantly, immediately, but anywhere where there's brokenness and emptiness and barrenness, Jesus touches by his grace and working in our lives brings about wholeness again. The Lord truly provides for our every need in his rich mercy because of Jesus. What else? Those who struggle and experience enmity, they discover the Lord's presence. Again, if we had time, we'd look back again and we'd, say, we'd see uh, Hagar and Ishmael uh, out in the wilderness twice. It, and this is a huge deal in Genesis. Twice we see this happen. She's out in the, in the wilderness and with her son and they're about to die. There's no food or no water. But the Lord speaks and she says, what is this place? She names the place the Lord hears. The Lord sees. He's not deaf to my cries. He knows my struggle. He knows I'm at my end, but the Lord is there. That's the, the, uh, the, the story. That's the picture that we get in Genesis. And then we see how it is ultimately completed in the New Testament with the gospel. Who is Jesus? Out of his many names, he is also the Prince of Peace. And when Jesus comes and the gospel begins to work on our lives, we then begin to see how he's at work and bringing not just the ending of hostilities, but wholeness. That's what peace is. He brings the broken pieces together as only he can. Where there's enmity and strife, Jesus brings peace. Finally, the cheater, the liar, the deceiver, the manipulator, all of us, because of the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ, we get 
not what we deserve. His grace pours out. We get what we never deserved because Jesus died in our place. The beauty of Genesis and all the original Testament leads us to Calvary and the cross and what Jesus did and the empty tomb that seals all of it. If it wasn't for the resurrection, we'd just be talking about another religion, right? But Jesus lives. We're not just talking about another option, another religious plan, another improve yourself kind of approach to living. No, we know how much we need him and he extends grace to us. That's the story we're gonna hear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pause to bow before you and humbly again say thank you, Lord, with hearts that are welling up with gratitude and praise for what only you could do by the grace of God. But God intervened when I was broken and dead and without hope in the struggle of my life. And Jesus, you brought healing and new life and peace and forever life. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done. As we worship and as we extend our time with baptisms, Lord, I ask for your blessing, especially those who are sharing. Lord, give them a peace as they speak, to speak openly and freely of the love that set them free. Be honored in that, Lord. And, and Jesus, I pray that if that if any of us are still wondering, what does all of this mean for me? Holy Spirit, work in such a way that our eyes would be opened and we'd have ears that finally hear and understand our need for you and what you've done for us. To the glory of God forever. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, we're continuing our Genesis Sermon Series. We also have multiple podcasts to check out, including 1 Peter, Crossroads, Ruth, FaithWorks, and Glory. For upcoming news and events, check out our website at mycityonahill.org.